So this week it's James chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, and I've called it Why We Need Wisdom. And so we pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. And as it says in Peter, you have given us everything we need to live a life that pleases you, to live a life of godliness. Your divine promises and the divine nature has been given to us. We have everything we need to live a life that pleases you, to overcome temptation, to love as you want us to love, to live the life as you called us to live in holiness and purity. So help us to put our trust in you now and to realize that you haven't left us to go through trials unequipped, but you have given us exactly what we need to go through them, and that is wisdom. So help us to learn about this today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we looked at patient endurance in trials, and that was James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and this week we'll try and get up to verse 11. But I want to just go through a memory verse for the book of James. It's like the summary verse for the book. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, remember the big picture? We're talking about the wisdom of God. Verses 1 to 11 talk about the wisdom of God. Why do we need wisdom? Well, so we don't waste our suffering and miss the spiritual growth that God intended. The change and the transformation that God wants to accomplish in us. So I'm going to go through and explain verses 5 to 11. But then afterwards, we're going to come back and look at Joseph as a great example of a man who understood that the many and difficult and varied trials and sufferings he experienced were from God and for his good. And he was therefore blessed with excellent character and joy. And as a contrast, we'll also look at Saul, King Saul, as an example of someone who wasted his trials. He missed the opportunities to develop the character trait of patient endurance in trials, and his life ended up a disaster. That's putting it nicely. So, let's read James chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So, let's go back to verse 5. 
and I'm calling this Ask for Wisdom. So verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So I'm going to start with a quote from David Guzik concerning if any of you lacks wisdom. He says, Trials bring a necessary season to seek wisdom from God. We often don't know we need wisdom until our time of difficulty. Once in a time of trial, we need to know if a particular trial is something God wants us to eliminate by faith or persevere in by faith. This requires wisdom. Now, I've mentioned before in Hebrews 11, in the last 10 verses, verses 30 to 40, that there's two lists. One is the list of those who are delivered. They overcome their trials through faith. And then the second half of the list is those who were not delivered but had to endure their trials. And they endured by faith. They persevered by faith. And at the end it says they all received a good testimony through faith. They all were exercising their faith. Now, for us, sometimes our error can be that we only focus on seeking deliverance. We refuse to accept that our continuing trial is in fact God's will. What this means is that we are really rebelling against God. We are saying, mine will be done, not God's will. At other times, when we're going through a trial, God may want us to ask for deliverance. He wants to use this situation for his glory. But because of doubt, we resign ourselves to the situation and wallow in despair, living in unbelief and defeat. So neither of those situations is correct. In both cases, we're out of God's will and out of fellowship with God. So whether it's deliverance or perseverance, we need to ask God, because both will bring glory to God. Either people will see God's strength in us as we persevere through the trial, or people will see God's power as he delivers us from the trial. Now, a good example for us, you know, we were delivered from a car accident just recently, and, you know, it was amazing that we got out of it unscathed. And we praise God, and God has used that as a praise point in other churches as well. Our basically miraculous escape from that without any injuries. But you know what? It could have been God's will for us to be injured, and then people would have seen us recover with a good attitude, prayerfully. And not complain, not be bitter, but just be grateful that we're still alive, grateful that God still loves us, grateful that we have a heavenly future. You know, could have been a paraplegic and we could have been on a different road, a road of trial for the rest of my life, so, or our lives. So it's either way, God is glorified. Now, another important question we need to ask is, What is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, knowledge is simply information, but wisdom tells us how to use it. Now, (laughs) there's many very intelligent fools. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Okay, intelligent fools. And you find a lot of them in our schools and universities. They know many facts. They are actually quite clever. They have a high IQ. 
but many times they fail to come to rational, logical, or scientific conclusions. And this also applies to government as well, <laughs> as we are witnessing in these last days. In the case of the science community, they believe nonsense like nothing produced everything, life came from non-life, and random mistakes in our DNA called mutations can create new, very complex information. Now, none of these things have ever been observed or are possible, yet they believe them anyway. So, consider that a good scientist is not only someone who has knowledge, but also wisdom to correctly use the knowledge that they have. And application here. The same is true for those who teach the Word of God. There are many intelligent but foolish theologians out there, Bible teachers, who are teaching foolishness. Why? Because they haven't asked God for his wisdom and understanding. They're using a human interpretation of the Scriptures, not a spiritual one. They're not being led by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Bible can only be correctly understood as the Holy Spirit gives understanding. Now, in trials, for us, application here, what do you think is most important? Knowledge or wisdom? Well, we need both, right? If you don't have any knowledge, you're stuck. But if you don't have wisdom, you're also stuck. We need wisdom and knowledge. For example, a person with just a little knowledge but some wisdom will be much better off than a person with a lot of knowledge but no wisdom. And I'll put it this way, better a little knowledge applied correctly than a lot of knowledge applied incorrectly. Make sense? Better a little knowledge applied correctly than a lot of knowledge applied incorrectly. Knowledge incorrectly applied is foolishness. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. Okay? So it doesn't matter how much you know, it's whether you put it into practice. Now, wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs. It has many benefits. So I thought I would just go back because, you know, James, the book of James and the book of Proverbs are both wisdom books. So I'm just going to talk about wisdom for a sec, get the big picture. So Proverbs chapter 8, verses 17 and 21, and I'm reading from the Amplified Version. It says, I love those, this is wisdom saying this, right? Wisdom personified. I love those who love me, and those who seek me early and diligently shall find me. So there's a promise. I love those who love me, and those who seek me early and diligently shall find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness, uprightness in every area and relation, and right standing with God. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than refined gold, and my increase than choice silver. So what's it saying there? It's not just money, is it? Okay, There's more to life than money and wealth, and wisdom will give you that more to life. I, wisdom, walk in the way of righteousness, moral and spiritual righteousness in every area and relation, in the midst of the paths of justice. So what's it saying there? Wisdom. God's wisdom is righteous and it's just that I might cause those who love me to inherit true riches and that I might fill their treasuries. So if you want the riches that the world cannot offer, then you're going to have to ask God for wisdom. So in verse 5 it says, let him ask of God. So God is the source of all wisdom. 
All we have to do is ask. Now, what do we do most of the time? We sometimes ask our friends. We rely on our own intelligence, our own life experience. We go to a course or seminar. We get counselling. Sometimes people even go to a secular counsellor. <laughs> we read books. And we may even ask the pastor. <laughs> but when all this fails, after our search for wisdom in this world has failed, we get around to asking God. And this is such a basic thing, but we are deceived by our prideful human nature. Our human nature wants us to think that we know everything and we don't need any help. But the fact is we don't know everything and we do need help. Okay, We don't have the wisdom that we need to get through every situation. God has made it that way, so we have to ask him, so we remain dependent on him. Now, how do we get this wisdom? How does God reveal things to us? Well, God may choose to reveal himself directly by his spirit through his word. Or he may provide wise counsel from other believers. And a good example of this is Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So, first of all, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Yeah? So you get the word in you, and you become wise. And when you have that, you are able to teach and admonish one another. You are able to impart wisdom to other people. Now, another way of knowing God's will is his peace in our hearts. And this is more subjective, and it's often misused. Okay? Being more subjective makes it a more, if I can say this, dangerous way of seeking God's will. Okay, and Colossians three fifteen, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So the idea is that the peace of God rules in our heart like an umpire. Yes, no, right, wrong, God's will or not God's will. And this is especially important when there's no absolute right or wrong answer. So you know you're a single guy and you have a desire to be married. And there's a Christian girl, she seems nice. Is she the right person for you or not? Well, there's no Bible verse for that. So what you need to do is pray and ask for God's guidance. And it comes as peace. I am at peace with this situation or I'm not at peace with this situation. So, you know, if we take this Colossians 3.15 at face value and just say it, Okay, if I have peace, then it's yes. If I don't have peace, then it's no. And, you know, all we have to do is say, yep, great. I feel at peace with this. I'm going to marry her. <laughs> but the problem is, that only works 100% of the time if we're abiding with God 100% of the time. Does that make sense? If we're not always abiding with the Lord, then His desires aren't always our desires. And because of our sinful nature, we don't always desire the things of God. And so our emotions can be at peace with doing the wrong thing. We're seeking the wrong thing. So, for example, that girlfriend or that wife, that job, that promotion, it could be what we've always wanted for ourselves. 
So we're at peace, but we're at peace with our own desires and ambitions and not at peace with God's will for us. So remember that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 So how do we know if this feeling of peace is just our emotions or actually the peace of God? Well, firstly, take your time. From experience, I know that, and I know you know, that emotions come and go. On a daily basis, it can change in an hour or a minute, yeah? They are influenced by many things. Our emotions are influenced by many things. Secondly, we need to commit the issue to the Lord in prayer. So, earnestly seek God's will on the matter and have an obedient heart, one that will obey whatever God tells you. You need to be submitted. Now, over time, and for me personally, it's sometimes taken up to months for God to reveal his will, particularly like moving jobs and things like that. But God did give direction. It involved fasting and praying. It involves staying in the Word. And most often, God will confirm things by something you read in the Word and you will just know that this is from God because you are listening for His still, small voice. So, an example is Jeremiah. When the people asked him, Hey, do we go down to Egypt or do we stay in the land of Israel? And Jeremiah got back to them, but it took 10 days for God to give Jeremiah the answer. Ten days. And so Jeremiah had to keep on seeking God until he got the answer. And that's the same for us too. Daniel, he was praying for how long? 21 days, okay, before he got his answer. So don't rush into things. Don't just depend on your emotions. Get into the Word and let God speak to you and when it does come when that peace does come you will know it is from God now we come back to the idea of humbly asking God why is humility so important well I've got a quote from Spurgeon who puts it well he says this it does not say let him buy of God let him demand of God let him earn from God oh no let him ask of God it is the beggar's word The beggar asks for alms. You are to ask as the beggar asks of you in the street, and God will give to you far more liberally than you give to the poor. You must confess that you have no merit of your own. So what's the main point here? Well, we are without merit. God is not obliged to give us wisdom. He doesn't owe it to us, nor can we earn it or deserve it. It's always given as a gift and so must be received as a gift, and this keeps us humble. Verse 5 also says, who gives to all liberally. And one of the wonderful attributes of our God is that he is a generous God. And if you look through the scriptures, no one has ever outgiven God. And verse 5 also says, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what does this mean? Well, simply that God will never despise or resent us or get sick of us asking for wisdom. We can never ask too many times and we can never ask for too much. Isn't that good to understand that? We can never ask too many times and we can never ask for too much. God delights in giving us much more than we need more often than we need it. Our God is never impatient. Our God is a loving Father with an open hand, not a closed fist, who never tires of giving. He will never run out of things or wisdom to give. So remember, God is a 
Heavenly Father. He's a Father. And as parents, we get joy when our children come and ask us for things, ask us for help. It's our desire to demonstrate love to them and to help them. But if they don't come to us, we can't do it. And so we wait for them to come to us and ask for help. And we want to then help them. And it brings us great joy. And it's the same for God. It brings God much joy whenever we humble ourselves, admit our need, and make the time to ask. So we need to ask more and more. Now, when we get answered prayers, do we say, oh, I better stop now because I've got that prayer answered? No. Once we get an answered prayer, that should spur us on to pray more because let's get more answered prayers. Right, let's move on to verses 6 to 8. It says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith. So, how do we ask? Well, it's in faith. But faith in what? Well, I believe it's our faith in both God's desire and his ability to give us his wisdom. And this is why many of our prayers fail. It's because we don't ask in faith and are therefore are not really believing that God both can and wants to bless us with his wisdom. So we say the words, but our hearts aren't in it. We don't really believe that God will answer the prayer. And there's two reasons. Either because we doubt God's love and care for us. God doesn't want to. Or we doubt God's ability. And both of these things are an insult to God. Think about your kids if they asked you for something but didn't really believe that you wanted to help them or you could help them it would be quite an insult, quite a hurtful situation. So God says here very clearly that he will not answer doubting prayers. Okay, That's something you need to get ahead around. He will not answer a doubting prayer. And we'll talk about what this doubting means in a sec. It's not necessarily how much faith you have. In verses 6 and 7 it says, With no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So as I said, if you're doubting, if you're double-minded, you should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, a foundation gives you something to stand on, something that's firm, something that you know is true. Okay, God's word is our foundation. A lack of faith and trust in God also reveals that we have no firm foundation because we are unstable in all our ways. Now, it says, like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind in verse 6. And a quote from Clark, he says, The man who is not thoroughly persuaded that if he ask of God he shall receive resembles a wave of the sea. He is in a state of continual agitation driven by the wind and tossed, now rising by hope and then sinking by despair. And you know what? I've heard so many testimonies that sound just like that. 
all driven by emotion and feelings and not by faith in God's promises. They have no firm foundation. They not experience God as their rock. And David Guzik talks about the wave of the sea. He says this, A wave of the sea is a fitting description of one who is hindered, I like that, hindered, right? By unbelief and unnecessary doubts. Our doubts are what? Unnecessary, yeah? A wave of the sea is without rest, and so is a doubter. A wave of the sea is unstable, and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is driven by the winds, and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is capable of great destruction, and so is the doubter. Now, in verse 8 it says, A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, what does it mean to be double-minded? Well, Guzit's got a good quote with this one. He says, To ask God, but to ask him in a doubting way, shows that we are double-minded. If we have... If we had no faith, we would never ask at all. If we had no unbelief, we would have no doubting. To be in the middle ground between faith and unbelief is to be double-minded. So we have a bit of faith and we also have unbelief. Now, a guy called Herbert, he says that double-minded is literally two-souled. All right? Another way of saying it, try and imagine this. A person has two minds or two competing desires. And they're not sure which one they really want. They have their worldly appetites. Then they have their desires for their heavenly rewards and their relationship with God. They are not fully committed to either. They can't make up their mind. They won't give up their worldly appetites or desires, nor will they let go of their heavenly desires or promises. If I can use some illustrations here. You might be going to church and having your Bible study, but then also still sinning in a particular area or having something in your life which is more important than God. Double-minded. So this is the underlying cause for doubt. It's a refusal to make a clear break from one reality for another. We need to forsake the temporary reality of this world for the eternal heavenly reality we need to say no to one and yes to the other but you know what happens and it's true for me sometimes as well we want the best of both worlds but when we do we experience neither we end up miserable not being content in either our worldly pursuits and nor with our relationship with god So I just want to point out here that it's not a matter of how much faith we have. It's a matter of whether or not all the faith we do have is in only one thing, God. Okay? Are we seeking our satisfaction, our contentment only in God or only in the world or a bit of both, yeah? So it's not a matter of how much faith you have. It's where that faith is. Is it mixed or is it singular? Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, Joshua gave an ultimatum to the double-minded Israelites. The Israelites, as you know, were always double-minded. They were always hanging on to their idols. It was a problem right throughout their history, right up to when they went into captivity in Babylon. 
And Joshua says this to them, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Be sincere, yeah? Be real. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. They've crossed over the Jordan River, they've defeated most of the land. Joshua is basically giving his swan song now, he's giving his last words. And he's saying to the children of Israel, you need to decide. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it continues on. The people say, yeah, we'll serve the Lord. But Joshua says, no, you've got to give up your gods. You can't do it. You've got to give up your gods. And people say, no, we will give up our gods. But you know what happened as soon as Joshua died, right? And the elders that outlived him, they went straight back into idolatry. They were double-minded people. And, you know, I know of people who are saved and are leading Bible studies but are indulging in lustful fantasies almost every day. And this is a real-world example of being double-minded, of having a foot in each camp, enjoying serving God but also loving the things of the world. So God is looking for total commitment to him, which means completely forsaking the world and its gods and idols. When we ask for wisdom, how do we ask? Well, Spurgeon gives us a, a good, simple way of doing it. He says, do you believe that God can give you wisdom and that he will do so if you ask him? Then go at once to him and say, Lord, this is what I need. Specify your wants. State your exact condition. Lay the whole case before God with as much orderliness as if you were telling your story to an intelligent friend who is willing to hear it and prepared to help you. And then say, Lord, this is specifically what I think I want. And I ask this of you, believing that you can give it to me. So this is really good. I like this because this is how we should pray all the time. Specifically, laying out our case before God, letting him know exactly what we need, and doing it in faith, believing that God both wants to help us, he's prepared to help us, and he can help us. Now we move on to verses 9 to 11. It says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has a sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So, Verses 9 and 10, it says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. It's right for the lowly, for those who are in humble circumstances, to rejoice when they are lifted up by God. But it's also right for those who are well-liked or well-off, the rich, to rejoice when they are brought to humiliation by trials. And verse 10 it says, and 11, Because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner 
Has the sun risen with a burning heat, then it withers the grass. Its flower fails, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, one of the reasons that God sends trials is to remind the rich and powerful that though they are comfortable in this life, it's only for this life and those comforts and those privileges they have will fade just as quickly as the grass turns brown and the flowers fall off. So remember what the word says? You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, yeah? Where does Jesus say? To lay up your treasure? Lay up your treasure in heaven, yeah? Now, Joseph, as a godly example. A quick summary of Joseph's life. You remember? He was a child of his favorite wife, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. By this time, Rachel had died. And Joseph became the favorite son of the favorite wife. And his brothers were very jealous of him. Joseph was the one who had the coat of many colors. And of course, you probably know the story, but he had dreams, two dreams. And in those dreams, his family was bowing down to him. And his brothers were furious with him. They were so jealous that they wanted to kill him. But God intervened. And he ended up being sold to some slave traders who took him to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. And he was living in Potiphar's house as a slave for around 10 years. So after proving faithful, Joseph was promoted to overseer, to be the overseer of Potiphar's house. But then you know what happened? Just as things were starting to look up and life was getting a bit easier, Potiphar's wife had eyes for him and harassed Joseph daily trying to get him to sleep with her. <laughs> Can you imagine that? In your place of employment, you know, this wouldn't go today, would it? Your sexual harassment. <laughs> but back then, as a slave, you had no rights. Finally, when there was no one around, she grabbed him and demanded that he lie with her, to sleep with her. Joseph did what any godly young man should do with sexual sin. He fled and he left his coat behind, her hanging onto it. He was then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and subsequently thrown into the king's prison, the one that Potiphar was in charge of. This was a dungeon, okay? You wouldn't see the light of day. So Joseph did the right thing. What happened to him? He got punished. Now there, Joseph remained forgotten in the dungeon for a number of years until the butler and the baker were also thrown into the king's prison. Now Joseph correctly interpreted their dreams. The butler was reinstated and the baker was hanged. Now more time goes by. Joseph is still forgotten, still living in a dungeon. But then Pharaoh has a dream and the butler remembers his sin of forgetting about Joseph. Joseph is then called out of the prison to appear before Pharaoh and to interpret Pharaoh's dream concerning the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And then, of course, Joseph is promoted to Prime Minister of Egypt. He's second in charge only to Pharaoh. And then years later, so you've got the first seven years of plenty and then a couple of years of famine. After those couple of years of famine, Joseph's brothers turn up. 
they have no food. And after a series of encounters with his brothers, Joseph finally reveals himself to them and the whole family, including Jacob, come down to Egypt. And then more years go by and Jacob dies. And the brothers wonder if Joseph will now pay them back for all the wrong that they had done to him. So I'm just going to pick up the story in Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messages to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for the evil they did you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Now, was that true? Did Jacob really say that? No, it's a lie. Okay? So they're being manipulative, yeah? They're trying to manipulate Joseph. They're trying to use the influence of their deceased father to try and stop Joseph from hurting them. Now, it continues, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And we'll find out why in a minute. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So, Joseph, a man who went through incredible trials. So we're going to see how Joseph applied the wisdom that God gave him, yeah? So why did Joseph weep when they lied to him about what their father said? The way I think about it is they were doubting his love for them. They were doubting his relationship with them. Remember they had fallen on each other and wept and had this family reunion and now they don't think that Joseph was real, that Joseph really meant what he said when he, he forgave them. Now keep in mind that Joseph is a picture or type of Jesus and we can cause God much grief when we doubt his love for us. When we doubt God's love, we cause him grief. One of the most painful things for your children to doubt that you love them. So what did Joseph mean when he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good? Well, the fact is, and Joseph recognized this, his brothers really did hate him at one stage and really did want him dead. They were responsible for their actions. They meant to do what they did. okay, And Joseph's honest about that. You meant evil against me. They were exercising their God-given free will. But at the same time, God was in control and exercising his free will. I love this. <laughs> we have our free will. And God has his free will too. God had a plan for Joseph and he allowed Joseph's brothers to act according to their evil plans so he could bring about good. So basically, Joseph looked back on his life And saw, maybe this is all perspective now, right? He saw the loving hand of God and not the hatred of his brothers. Yeah? He knew that God was in control, directing his life every step of the way. 
Joseph could therefore forgive his brothers, not blaming them for his difficult life, because he knew that nothing could happen to him unless God allowed it. So he knew that this was God's plan for his life, yeah? God meant it for good. This was God's plan. I know that God used you to do it and you meant it for evil. You actually did hate me. And you'll be responsible for that. But I'm not blaming you for what's happened to me. God allowed it. It's his will. It's good. So one thing to remember is that the bigger the task or responsibility that God has planned for us, then the longer and harder will be the preparation time for it. So Joseph understood this when he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So Joseph is at the end of his life, close to the end of his life. He's looking back, yeah? And Joseph is seeing that he had to go through all those trials and sufferings to prepare him for the very daunting and difficult task of being the Prime Minister of Egypt, yeah? Think of Moses. How long did it take to prepare Moses? 40 years in the wilderness, okay? 40 years. Had a massive ministry, but it took a lot of preparation. So another way of saying it is like this. The lower we are willing to let God take us, the higher he can raise us up. The Bible says that God exalts the humble. Our exaltation is always in proportion to our humiliation. That's not a very nice thing, is it, to be humiliated? But Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus suffered the ultimate humiliation, but then also received the highest exaltation. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So I just want to point out another purpose in our trials is to humiliate us, but not in a negative way, in a positive way. It's to humble us so that we are more usable for God, that we are more dependent on God. And another example of how Joseph applied wisdom to his various trials was when he refused to sleep with or even be with Potiphar's wife. And his reason was it would be sinning against God. So the wisdom that we're looking at here is Joseph's awareness of God's holiness and the fact that Joseph knew that God was watching him. And Joseph had already determined that his goal was to please God. That is some good wisdom that we can ask for. Genesis 39, 9-10, talking about this situation, Potiphar's wife. He's saying this to Potiphar's wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her, not even to talk to her. He set strong boundaries. Another attribute or form of wisdom that Joseph had was he always had a positive attitude and gave his absolute best, no matter how he was treated or falsely accused. So after Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisons were confined. This is Genesis 39, 20-23. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. 
I love verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Okay, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing, Joseph's doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Remember, Potiphar is the keeper of the prison, right? He's the guy in charge of this king's prison. Now, because Joseph maintained a good attitude or the right perspective that this was God's will and it was good for him, it's preparing him for something, right? Then he was always usable or available to God. And God was able to continue to prepare Joseph for the job of ruling Egypt, preparing Egypt for the nation of Israel to come in. Now just imagine what would have happened if Joseph had spat the dummy and doubted either God's power or his love. All right? I probably would have done this. I can't believe it. I resisted that sin, and now I find myself in prison. This is just not fair. God, where are you? What are you doing? I'm sick of this. You know, I hate being in this dungeon. I want to be out in the sunshine. It stinks. I can't shave. I can't have a shower. Old clothes. You know, it's not nice in a dungeon. Having this little pity party. You know, I probably would do that. This is pretty serious trials, yeah? But Joseph trusted God even when he didn't know why the bad things just kept happening to him. I mean, it's bad enough to be sold as a slave, but then to have to work your way up and then be, you know, harassed by this woman, and then be falsely accused and be thrown into a dungeon. I mean, it just gets worse and worse. But Joseph was putting into practice Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. It says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So, here we have this comforting thought that, yes, the people who are hurting us, they are doing it because they hate us. But they will be repaid for what they've done. But despite that, God is using it for our good, yeah? God is using other people's hatred and, and their ill will toward us, and he's actually using it for our good to achieve his purposes. So the main points of wisdom that we get from Joseph's life are, one, he accepted all circumstances as being from God. He trusted, number two, that God loved him and that everything was working for his good and God's glory, even in the middle of severe and ongoing trials. And it's been said that Genesis 50.20, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28, where it says, all things work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Three, Joseph avoided sin because his desire, his predetermined desire, was to please God by obeying God. He understood that God was watching his every move and that God is a holy God. And number four, Joseph always had a positive attitude and the right perspective. He always worked hard and did his best, even when unfairly treated. And as a result, he was able to glorify God 
and God was able to be blessed even in his dark circumstances. Now, this can be applied in many ways. I'm just thinking about you know, when we're unfairly treated. We can be in a marriage or in a, a friendship, and that friend or that spouse can be very difficult to get along with sometimes. I, I'm not talking about my wife. <laughs> I've observed in different families. But what do you do? Do you just have a bad attitude toward that person and, and be narky back? No. You keep treating them with love, yeah? Because remember, you're not serving them so much as you are serving God. Now, King Saul, I'm not going to talk about his life, but just point out one main thing in his life. This is worldly wisdom, and it cost him his kingship, his crown. Okay, So God set King Saul up as being king of Israel, but he had one big problem. He feared man more than God, and was therefore more concerned with his reputation among other people than what God thought of him. And as you read through his life in 1 Samuel, you will see that this ultimately led to his ruin. Time and time again, Saul decided it was more important to impress the people rather than to impress God. And Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So, learn from King Saul. You can read First uh, Samuel. It'll take you a little while, but you know Saul's life. There's a lot of chapters there. God puts these things there for our learning, yeah. And you can see how he used human wisdom, and it cost him dearly. Compare that to Joseph. Read the story of Joseph in Genesis and see how Joseph used godly wisdom instead of human wisdom. So, if we trust in the Lord and walk in obedience, we will be safe in His will. Now, summary, who to believe? This is like going back to the Garden of Eden, yeah? If we trust God, then the trials will work for us and not against us. But we must be sure that our hearts are fully yielded to God. If our hearts and minds are divided, if we're double-minded, if we're doubting, then the trials will tear us apart. Basically what this means is that if we listen to and believe Satan like Eve did, then the trial becomes a temptation. Okay. What Satan intends from the temptation will be what we experience, misery and bitterness. However, if we listen to and believe God, then it's not a temptation, but rather a trial. The same situation changes. It's now a trial, not a temptation. If we trust God, then what God intends from the trial will be what we experience, growth in our character resulting in joy and love. So, in different translations of the Bible, sometimes the word is translated trial and sometimes it's translated temptation. And the reason? Well, they're both correct in context. From Satan's point of view, all the times that we suffer, either through persecution, temptation to sin or hard times, it's a temptation to turn us away from God and to stop trusting God just like he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden. But from God's point of view, who never tempts anyone, the trials are opportunities for our growth, for our good. And that's why we are to consider it all joy. So let's read that again together. James chapter 1, verses 2-4 to four. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I'm just going to finish on Romans 5, 3 to 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Remember that word is the same as in James. Patience, it means endurance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Was Joseph disappointed when he trusted God? Absolutely not. He went through 13 years of figurative or metaphorically hell, yeah? Being taken away from his family, all those things, you know, and yet he counted it all joy. And in the end he could look back and say, yeah, I was right to trust God. Saul oh, trusted himself, trusted in human wisdom, and his life was a mess. And he ended up dying a disgraceful death. So, Father, help us to continue to trust in you. We have these examples in the scriptures. Of just I've chosen today Saul and Joseph. One trusted in you sought you, wanted to please you, made a, a prior decision to please you in everything that he did. And one just basically said, oh, I just want to be popular. I want to be liked by people. One was successful and one was a failure. And Lord, we just pray that we can forget about what people think about us. We can forget about trying to impress other people. We can forget about enjoying pleasures and living a comfortable life. But rather, we can instead seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to us. Everything that we need, you will give us if we're just willing to remain in the place where you place us, to remain in your will and to not run away from the pressure, not to try and escape the pressure, but to stay under that pressure and allow you to keep your fingers on us, pressing into us as we spin around as clay on that wheel and are moulded into a beautiful vessel which is fit for the Master's use. So we just yeah, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.